Please turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 12. That's where we're going to be this morning. Verse 12 through 19. When uh, A&M Consolidated High School started a soccer team my senior year, I joined the team. Uh, it was just a few short years ago. And um, they didn't have anybody on staff who had played soccer, so they gave us one of the football coaches. And, and uh, he didn't know anything about soccer at all, but he did know a lot about conditioning. And he understood that in soccer, typically you run a fair amount. And so he ran us and he ran us and he ran us and he ran us. Oh man, he, I've never been in such great shape in my life. And I remember uh, grousing with my teammates. We hated practice. We wanted to scrimmage or play games or whatever, but boy, practice was really rough. However, at the end of the season, we did really well. First season for Consol to have soccer, and we won district. And we looked back, and we could tell that one of the reasons we had done so well is because we were in better shape than anybody else in our district. As Christians, I think it's a helpful way for us to look at our lives as training for the next. The next life is not only much longer, it's also much more important And right now, God is in the process of training us. And sometimes that training is painful and we'd rather do anything else. But God never wastes our experiences. I want you to read with me in chapter 4, 1 Peter, and verse 12. Peter writes, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. Peter writes, beloved, do not be surprised. The testing or the training that you're going through right now in this life is not accidental. God is not surprised and you should not be surprised. God is testing you and he is training you so that he can stretch your faith and make it strong so that you can finish this life well. The Apostle James probably said it best. James chapter 1, he said, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. It gives you strength. It allows you to finish the course that God has laid before you well, to finish strong, not to limp across the finish line. And so God must test us to strengthen us, but also so that he can reward us. I want you to turn back with me to chapter 1 of 1 Peter and verse 6. It's almost as if Peter and James shared notes, almost as if they knew one another and talked about this before. He says, In this that is in your salvation, this wonderful gift of salvation that you have received, in this you greatly rejoice, even though now, for a little while, if necessary, You have been distressed by various trials so that the proof or the demonstration of your faith being more precious than gold which is perishable even though tested by fire may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. God tests your faith and he strengthens your faith so that he can reward your faith. Last week what we talked about was the fact that we will be tested and tried. God tests his people. And Peter lays out a criteria. Here's how God tests. These are the things that matter to God. And it's not always the big and flashy things. It's the things that are secret and hidden. And the small acts that we do. Uh, This week, Peter pushes the conversation a little further. And he says, now, let me tell you how God rewards you for that testing that he brings you through. 
Because he will, in fact, reward you. So this morning we're going to talk about the doctrine of rewards. And it's funny, every time I teach on this doctrine, it's inevitable. Somebody comes up to me and they say, Brian, we should, we should follow Jesus Christ. We should give him our whole lives just because we love him. We shouldn't be in it for the reward. And I say, you know, you're right. The, the, probably the highest motivation is our love for Jesus Christ, our gratitude for what he has done for us. But if you look in the Bible... There are all kinds of motivations that God lays out. Sometimes we obey God because we're afraid of discipline in our lives. Sometimes it's the pure motive of love and gratitude. And then sometimes it is reward. I want you to turn with me. Keep your place here in 1 Peter and turn back to the Gospel of Matthew. Chapter 19. We're going to look at one of Peter's interactions with Jesus. Matthew chapter 19 In verse 27. Then Peter said to Jesus, Behold, we have left everything and followed you. What then will there be for us? Jesus, what's in it for us? That's exactly what he's saying. Jesus, we have left everything. Yeah, we love you. but, But what's in it for us, Jesus? And notice... Jesus doesn't stop at this point and say, Peter, stop being so greedy. Don't you love me? He's going to talk to Peter about that later. But right now, he doesn't say, Peter, don't you just love me? Isn't that enough? Haven't you enjoyed sleeping outdoors with me and having a rock for a pillow? Hasn't it been enough just to be with me? No, he doesn't say that. He doesn't condemn Peter for asking. What he does is he says, well, Peter, let me tell you what's in it for you. Verse 28, Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you that you who have followed me in the regeneration when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also shall sit upon twelve thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. You will have position. You will have authority. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or or mother or children or farms for my name's sake will receive many times as much and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Peter, I don't evaluate things like you evaluate things. The last will be first and the first will be last. My criteria is different and Peter got it. He understood that. But he also understood that God rewards faithfulness. And there's nothing at all illegitimate about that. To long to be rewarded. For sacrificing for Jesus Christ and living for him in this lifetime. C.S. Lewis wrote a short essay. It's called The Weight of Glory. It may be the the single best Christian essay I've ever read in my life. Okay, so you should read it. Uh, It's called The Weight of Glory. It's a a compilation, but the one essay is labeled The Weight of Glory. He says this. He said, we must not be troubled when people say that this promise of reward makes the Christian life a mercenary life. There are different kinds of rewards. There is the reward which has no natural connection with the things you do to earn it and is quite foreign to the desires that ought to accompany those things. Money is not the natural reward of love. That is why we call a man mercenary if he marries a woman for the sake of her money. But marriage is the proper reward for a real lover, and he is not mercenary for desiring it. The proper rewards are not simply tacked on to the activity for which they are given, but are the activity itself in consummation. And Jesus says there is a right and an appropriate reward for living for me in this lifetime. And Peter is going to lay that out for us. I want you to turn back to 1 Peter again 
in chapter 4. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. This is the normal Christian life. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exultation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Look back in verse 13 again. Peter writes, But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ. That word for share is the word koinonia. We get the word fellowship from that. In other words, Peter is saying Christian fellowship is not just about a potluck dinner with a funny casserole and a can of green beans. Christian fellowship means sharing in the sufferings of Christ. That's what we join into. That's what we enter into. Now, certainly Peter is talking about something broader than just suffering for Christ. He says in chapter 1, various trials, multifaceted trials, any trial that you go through in this life. But in particular, in this context, when we identify with Jesus Christ, it's not that we are seeking after suffering, but when we identify with Christ in this world, suffering will come back upon us. And remember in Peter's context, he's talking primarily about them being verbally reviled for their faith in Christ. Peter says, to the degree that you share in that, you join in that fellowship and you suffer well, that is you suffer with joy now, to that degree you will have exceeding joy in the future. Verse 13 again, but to the degree that you share or join into the sufferings of Christ, Keep on rejoicing right now so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice exceedingly or rejoice with great joy. When Jesus Christ returns, he comes to the earth. If you have chosen to adopt God's perspective on your suffering today and you have rejoiced in your suffering because you have lived for Jesus Christ, at that day when Christ returns, you will have joy that you cannot even imagine. You couldn't even contemplate it right now. The only analogy that I could think of was what Tim alluded alluded to earlier, and that's Aggie football. Okay, especially after uh, last night. I want to to create a scenario for you. You know, win over Nebraska is great, but imagine imagine that the the, the BCS rankings work out such that Texas A&M and TU are at the top. So we're playing for the championship game. Right? I mean, and the rankings make no sense anyway, so just imagine. It'll, it'll make, okay, it's fine. So there we are, we're at the top, and we're going to play TU for the championship game. And imagine that you're a part of the team, and you get playing time, and you're out there, and you give it all. You, put it, you leave it all on the field, and you're sweaty and tired and bruised by the end of the game. Or maybe if you can't imagine that, maybe imagine that you're just part of the 12th man, okay? And you're doing your part. 
You've stood through the entire game and it's hot, it's sweaty, it's 105 degrees and the sun, is, you're in the student section, the sun's just baking you, but you stay standing and you're screaming and you're yelling and you're going crazy. You're pulling for the team. At the end of the game, Texas A&M is victorious and we win the national championship, okay? That part's not hard to imagine, but I'm going to make an analogy from that, okay? The reason I make this analogy is because in our little subculture, the only thing that we really, really, really get excited about is athletics, You know, if you're out looking for a a new house and you find this great deal and it's a great price, that's exciting, it's wonderful. But I doubt that any of us have ever jumped up and down and screamed and yelled and raised our hands. I mean, we just just don't, athletics, that's what we get excited about. It doesn't even happen in church, but that's, at least Bible churches, but that's another sermon and we won't, we're not going to talk about that this morning. But the point is, imagine, you know, it was just like last night, they rush the field, you go crazy because you were there. You didn't waste your time in your dorm room studying. (laughs) You were a part of the action. You're part of the team. 12th man. It was our win. And Peter says, to the degree that you enter into the experience of Christ in this life, when he returns and the whole world sees his glory, you will know that you were not a spectator, but you were a participant. Peter says, you will rejoice exceedingly. You will have exceeding joy. You know, someday I I imagine that we will step into heaven. And I don't know if there will be pearly gates as I imagine the pearly gates, but I imagine stepping into heaven and getting to meet uh, certain believers that have gone before. And I I really literally have my questions lined up for Peter and Paul and James and John. You know, I imagine I, I walk up to Peter who was crucified upside down, and I see the scars on his body. I don't want to stand in front of Peter and have no scars. And I don't want to see the Apostle Paul, who was whipped and flogged, and there's scars on his back, and a scar that rings his neck because he was beheaded for the cause of Christ, and I don't want to see him face to face and have no scars. Or see John, who was boiled in oil, his whole body, boiled in oil and have no scars. Or walk up to my Savior and see his hands with scars through them and scars through his feet and a side that was pierced. I have no scars. Because I just stood on the sidelines. A couple centuries ago, Amy Carmichael was a missionary in India. She helped rescue orphans off of the streets. And she wrote a poem that kind of depicts this that I wanted to share with you. It's called No Scar. Hast thou no scar? No hidden scar on foot or side or hand. I hear thee sung as mighty in the land. I hear them hail thy bright ascendant star. Hast thou no scar? Hast thou no wound? Yet I was wounded by the archer spent, leaned me against a tree to die, and rent by ravening beasts that encompassed me. I swooned. Hast thou no wound? No wound, no scar. Yet as the master shall the servant be, and pierced are the feet that follow me, but thine are whole. Can he have followed far who has no wound, no scar? Eternal life is an absolutely free gift, is it not? Because Jesus Christ was wounded for us. He paid the penalty for our sins, and he gives us life that lasts forever. No debt, no fear, no guilt. It's an absolutely free gift. If you've never received it, I encourage you to reach out and say, God, thank you. I accept. 
When you do, you need to understand, though, you've been purchased and bought into this family. And the natural response of receiving such a wonderful gift is that we would live for Christ, holding absolutely nothing back. And when we do, it's not that we go out and we seek suffering for Christ, but it will come. Will we shrink back or will we boldly move into obedience for Christ? Peter says, to the degree that you identify with Jesus Christ and embrace whatever suffering comes and you do so with joy, to that degree, when you see Christ, you will have exceeding joy. Peter goes on, there are other rewards. He says, you'll also experience an intimacy and a power that you can't know any other way. Verse 14, if you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests Upon you. Now, Peter is quoting here from the book of Isaiah, chapter 11. It goes like this A shoot will spring forth from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and strength, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. This is speaking of Messiah, right? The Son of God, it says, the Spirit of God will rest upon him. This happened when Jesus Christ was baptized. God sent his Spirit in the form of a dove and it rested upon Christ. And God said, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And Jesus said, behold, I have come to do your will. And God's Spirit empowered God's Son with wisdom and insight and discernment and strength to go about and do all of the will of God. God's spirit came upon him to maintain that intimacy that father, son, and spirit had with one another from all of eternity. Have you ever thought about your Christian life that there must be something more? Gosh, there there must be more. More strength, more power, more wisdom. So often we don't experience it because we're holding back. We don't realize... All of life is about following Christ. And Peter says, to the degree that you identify with Jesus Christ in this world, you will experience the Spirit of God, his glory resting upon you. Presently, right now. Third, Peter says, we will also experience fellowship in his glory. Down in chapter 5, verse 1. Peter says, therefore I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. And that word for partaker is, again, the word for fellowship. One who has fellowship in the glory of God. Peter's talking specifically about elders, but it applies to all believers that we have an opportunity to share in God's glory. You know, this, this word for glory is a really rich word in Hebrew. It's the word kavod, and it means, literally, heavy. Something that's heavy. Let me give you a couple of illustrations. First, Book of 1 Samuel. It says, when the messenger mentioned the ark of God that it had been taken captive by the Philistines, Eli fell off the seat backward beside the gate and his neck was broken and he died for he was old and he was heavy. He was glorious, but not in the best of ways. It just means he was heavy. So he fell off and broke his neck. Okay. Ezekiel 21, the king of Babylon stands at the parting of the way at the head of the two ways. To use divination, he shakes the arrows, he consults the household idols, he looks at the liver. What in the world? Well, the liver was considered the heaviest organ. So it was called, literally, he looks at the glory. He looks at the glory because it's heavy. So, metaphorically, something that is heavy is something that's important. God is important. 
And I glorify God when I make sure that people know he's important. He's the greatest. That is the essence of praise and worship. We are calling out, God, we know that you're great. We know that you are important. You are valuable. We recite all of your attributes and your wonder. We are glorifying God. Psalm 115 says this, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give weight. Because of your loving kindness, because of your truth, we praise you. Now here's the thing about God. God will not give away his glory. He won't allow it to be stolen or taken by anyone else. But he will allow it to be shared. God shares his glory. And he shares it with us. Again, let me read to you 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 7. The proof of your faith being more valuable than gold. Gold which is perishable, even when it's tested and refined by fire. Your faith that has been proven may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You enter into the praise and the glory and the honor of Jesus Christ. You share. And when my kids do something well, you know what I do? I praise them. And I love to praise them. My son's doing taekwondo right now and and last week we were sparring in class man he was awesome kicking the other kid in the head that's awesome (laughs) you know and at the end he punched the guy and knocked him down it was awesome like good job oh yeah I helped that other kid up I praise him because I'm proud of him because he's working hard and he's putting effort in and he was really focused and concentrating. I praise him. My daughter's doing gymnastics right now. She's getting really strong. She's learning to do cartwheels and swinging on the bar. And, she can, you know, and she's learning how to do these, these rolls and everything. I'm just amazed. And she comes off four and I praise her. And I see their spirits grow. Because we were designed not just to praise. Yes, to praise and to find joy and satisfaction in that. But also to enjoy being praised. But I remind my kids when I praise them, remember who gave us the body to do that? Who gave us the minds to think and to learn and to express and to create? Who gave us all of those things? Let's enjoy what God has given us and turn that praise back to him. And that's what Peter says. When we suffer for Christ and we suffer well and we do so with joy, we bring honor and glory to Jesus Christ. And when Jesus Christ is revealed and we have lived our lives for him, then we will share in that glory. We will share in that praise. Again, let me read to you from C.S. Lewis. Same essay later on. He writes this. The promise of glory, that is for us to share in the glory, is the promise almost incredible and only possible by the work of Christ. That some of us, that any of us who really chooses shall actually survive that examination, shall find approval, shall please God. To please God. To be a real ingredient in the divine happiness. To be loved by God, not merely pitied, but delighted in as an artist delights in his work or a father in a son or daughter. It seems impossible, a weight or a burden of glory, which our thoughts can hardly sustain, but so it is. To be an ingredient in the happiness of God. To share his glory, to have his face turn upon us with approval. 
Say, this is my beloved son. This is my beloved daughter in whom I am well pleased. Peter says, we have an opportunity to share in the glory. He goes on. He says, we also have an opportunity to share or fellowship in his authority. When Christ returns, as Jesus said to Peter, you will sit on 12 thrones. That's a particular role for the apostles. There'll be 12 thrones. But for you who are faithful with those talents you've been given, those stewardships, then you also will rule and reign. Paul said to uh, Timothy, his disciple, if we are faithful and we endure, we will also reign with Christ. That means is our lives will be significant. Our lives will have meaning, not just now, but for all of eternity, because we will rule and reign with Christ. We will share in his authority. Finally, we'll have confidence in the day of judgment or in the day of evaluation when we are standing before Jesus Christ. Let me give you just one reference for this. First John chapter 2. John wrote, Now little children abide in him, so that when he appears we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. Instead, we can stand in his presence and know we chose well. We lived well. We did not live for what the world loves, but we lived for that moment when we would see Jesus Christ face to face. We identified with him. In other words, men and women Christians, believers in Jesus Christ, we get it. Sometimes I step back and I say, God, I'm just amazed. How is it that you revealed to me? This is what life is about. This is, this is why we exist as men and women. This is why we exist as human beings. To bring honor and glory and praise to Jesus Christ and then someday to share in that honor and glory and praise. And we understand it. People, we know. But not everyone does. And they're wandering about trying to find meaning in life and they never get it. And if they don't hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, they're going to be separated from him. So we have an obligation not to take these riches of this wealth and hoard it for ourselves, but to say we exist to honor and glorify Jesus Christ and to make him known. A few weeks ago, a member of our church, a friend of mine, sent me a link to a video clip that really drives home this point well. It's a video of a man named Penn Gillette. You've probably heard of Penn and Teller. They're uh, magicians, comedians. They do a, an, an act together. And uh, just, I, I don't want to set up too much for you on this video, but Penn uh, Gillette is an atheist. Okay? He's an atheist. I want to talk to you about this. Uh, I've been home from the show, and at the end of the show, as I've mentioned before, we go out and we, uh, we talk to folks and, you know, sign an occasional autograph and shake hands and so on. And there was one guy waiting over to the side in the um, what I call the hover position after I was all done. Big guy, probably about my age. Big guy. And he walked over to me and he said, um, I was here last night at the show and uh, I saw the show and I liked it. I wanted, and he was very complimentary about my use of language and um, complimentary about, you know, honesty and stuff. He said nice stuff. No reason to go into it. He said nice stuff. And then he said, I brought this for you. And he handed me a uh, Gideon pocket edition. Um, I thought it said from the New Testament, but I also thought it was Psalms from the New Testament, right? Or, uh, Psalms from the New, just part of the New Testament 
it'll look about this big, this thick, you know. He said, I wrote in the front of it, and I wanted you to have this. I'm kind of uh, proselytizing. And then he said, I'm a businessman. I'm, I'm sane. I'm not crazy. And he looked me right in the eye and did all of this. And uh, it was really wonderful. I believe he knew that I was an atheist. But he was not uh, defensive. And he looked me right in the eyes. And he was truly complimentary. It wasn't in any way, it didn't seem like empty flattery. He was really kind and nice and sane and looked me in the eyes and talked to me. And then gave me this Bible. And I've always said, you know, that I, I don't respect people who don't proselytize. I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there's a heaven and hell and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life or whatever, and you think that, uh, well, it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward. And atheists who think that people shouldn't proselytize, just leave me alone, keep your religion to yourself. Uh how much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? I mean, if I believed beyond a shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe it, that truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point where I tackle you. And this is more important than that. And I've always thought that, and I've written about that, and I've thought of it conceptually. This guy was a really good guy. He was polite and honest and sane, and he cared enough about me to proselytize and give me a, a Bible, which had written in it a little note to me, uh, not very personal, but just, you know, like your show and so on, and then like five phone numbers for him and an email address if I wanted to get in touch. Wow, I don't, I don't know if uh, that impacted you, but... Said, how much would you have to hate a person not to tell them? <laughs> we have the goods. We understand how a person can have eternal life and have meaning and significance. Invest in things that transcend this life. And now we're entering into this holiday season. We're going uh, home for Thanksgiving. My wife and I are going to see her family, and then we'll have Christmas time, and we're going to be around friends and family relatives, many of whom don't know Jesus Christ. This is the time of year. What a wonderful opportunity for us to share the love of Jesus Christ. And will it at times be a little bit socially awkward? Yeah, but, oh man, even an atheist gets it. <laughs> it's a little bit socially awkward, but how much more important is eternity? So this morning as we end, we're going to have an opportunity to celebrate communion. As we, as we take communion together, what I'd like us to think about is just giving God thanks that we understand that we have life through Christ. And then asking him to give us opportunities to identify with Christ, to speak the words of the gospel during this season. Right, would the men come forward and serve us?
the night which he was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it. And he said to his followers, he said, this bread is my body, which is broken for you. It represents the physical suffering that Jesus Christ went through because of our sin. Let's take the bread together. And he took the cup in the same way. And he said, this cup is blood of my covenant. And the covenant, the agreement that I want to enter into with you. And my blood will pay for your sin and remove your debt. Let's take the cup together. Father, we do thank you for the blood of Christ. Removed our debt and removed our shame and our guilt because of our sin. It gives us hope and confidence. We will live forever with you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Stand and sing a song as we go. thank you for the sacrifice of Christ. We thank you, Lord, for the opportunities that we will have as we see friends and family, as we renew old uh, relationships, opportunity that we have to to bring life. I pray, Father, that uh, you just fill us with such a depth of gratitude and and such great hope for the reward we will see when we see Jesus Christ face to face, that we will be filled with boldness and confidence as we share the love of Christ. It's in his precious name we pray. Amen. God bless you, and I'll pray for great opportunities. See you next week.